0: Together over the past several weeks, and uh, we do look forward to the uh, Preston and his family getting back uh, safely from the States. I uh, do hope and pray uh, they've had a wonderful time. We've seen some of the pictures and updates, and uh, we've kept in contact with one another at least uh, well every few days. And so they seem to be really enjoying themselves, and that is a blessing, amen. And uh, so, I want to get into a lesson tonight. Uh, on some of the uh, topics that we have talked spoke, spoken about over the past uh, few weeks, uh, except for last week. And uh, really and truly, I want to do an introduction and an overview of the book of Revelation tonight. And uh, I wish I would have started it last week. It's a lot of information. So I'm going to be mindful of our time this evening. And I'm just going to get as far as I can in the lesson tonight and see what the Lord will do for us. I do believe he'll help us out in a tremendous, tremendous way. So I'm going to ask you, if you will, to uh, take your Bible out tonight, and let's open up to Revelation, if you will. Uh, we are going to be looking at several verses in the book of Revelation, and uh, we'll be getting in there shortly. I'm going to give you a bit of an introduction to start out with tonight, but we will just open up to Revelation chapter 1, and uh, we're going to look at a few verses here. We are going to jump around, so maybe a bit of a sword drill this evening, and we um, and as we continue to, uh, to study and look at this uh, this marvelous, magnificent book that God has given us. So Revelation, the book of Revelation, guys, was written during the last decade of the first century. And it most likely, uh, it was written somewhere between 95 and 96 A.D. I lean toward the latter number, 96 A.D., but nonetheless, it's written around that time sometime And some people may ask, you know, what is important about this this most wonderful final and last book of the Bible? Guys, it is of the utmost value the book of Revelation is, because establishing the proper time also establishes the proper uh, emperor of Rome, and all of this and that we find when you begin to study the book of Revelation, when you see uh, what God God had done. At the time it was written, domination was at helm and and it was, it was that sentence on John, uh, he was the one that sentenced on uh, John to the Isle of Patmos. It wasn't Nero, okay, it was, it was Domitian. And, and he was one, he was a, a horrible emperor, but he got to the point to where he was murdering, there's a massive onslaught of the killing of Christians, and especially with Nero. Nero started this onslaught of, of murdering kill, killing Christians, and it went on for uh, for years upon years and decades. And, and all of a sudden, in this last decade of the first century, uh, Domitian, who was guilty, he was guilty of bloodlust, he was guilty of destroying and trying to wipe out the Christian faith, finally got to the point point. says, listen, let's just put that guy out on an island, because every time we continue to, to kill these Christians, hundreds of them are popping up. And so, um, and so this is where God would have John to go to write and pen the Revelation of Jesus Christ. This is why it's called the Revelation. Uh, it's not John's Revelation. It's the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And the Apostle John happens to be uh, the penman, if you will. So if we chart out a New Testament timeline tonight, we look at the church age, the age in which we live in today, uh, begins with the resurrection of Jesus Christ until the rapture of the saints. We've already covered the rapture under the title of the shout, okay? And we'll do the next thing on the uh, timeline, if you will, which is the tribulation period, which will begin at the rapture of the church, uh, the rapture of the saints of God, and it will end at the second advent or the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you find the millennium, the millennium, the 1,000 year reign of Jesus Christ, which begins uh, at the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, obviously runs for a thousand years since it's called the millennium, and it ends with what's known as the Great White Throne Judgment, which is uh, in Revelation chapter 20. Now we know the Great White Throne Judgment to be to be uh, the judgment seat for the lost, okay? Uh, and it is, and it is, and without chasing around tonight, because I want to stay on an overview of what we're looking at, there will be others that are judged there. Okay, who come through the millennial kingdom, if you will, and uh, I can show you that verse. Maybe at the later on uh, part after we finish this lesson here, the semen. But nonetheless, that's how you chart out the New Testament. That's what you're looking at. What well, I'm going to make something very clear this evening, uh, not only the importance of the Book of Revelation, and it is important for us to understand. Because the book of Revelation, guys, is divided into three parts. We need to know the, the New Testament outline and how it's broken up into three stages, and we need to notice we need to be able to see how um, the new how Revelation is because it's broken up in the same three categories: the Church Age, the Tribulation Period, and the Millennial Kingdom slash Eternity as well. And so, if we allow Scripture to answer Scripture, and the Bible being the best commentary of itself, um, when we allow the Word of God to be its own interpreter we begin to see not only these divisions, but we begin to see how they are divided and what they're divided by. Now, there is no private interpretation of the Holy Scripture. We need to understand that. Peter said in 2 Peter no 1.20, knowing this first, and no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. I'm going to say this next statement a couple of times in the lesson tonight as you turn to Revelation 4. I'm going to say this. The book of Revelation is not hard to understand. Most people will tell you that, man, I just cannot understand the Book of Revelation. Revelation is not hard to understand. It's, as a matter of fact, it's very simple when you look at it the way it's broken down. All right, the Church Age, uh, Revelation one through three, Revelation four through nineteen, the Tribulation period, the Heavenly Vision, and then from that point forward, the Millennial Kingdom and eternity. There's done. All right. So from chapter nineteen, you got chapters twenty through twenty-two. That is eternity. That's the Millennial Kingdom, and that's eternity. So you see a great bulk of the entire book is about Daniel's 70th week. It's about the tribulation period. Which And why is that important? And why is it taking up so much room uh, in the book of Revelation? Because you have four trips through the tribulation period from a different view and a different angle, all right? It's not a chronological book. It doesn't just kick off with heavenly vision, Revelation 4, verses 1 and 2, and run straight all the way uh, into this chronological order of, of seals and trumpets and vials in this chronological area, you matter of fact, you have trumpets and seals and vials; these judgments poured out upon the land. You have some of them overlapping one another. Okay, so therefore, you need to understand tonight that it's four trips through through, through the tribulation period from a different angle that we find within that chapter four through nineteen. That's important for you to know tonight because I do personally believe that will help you understand it. It is not hard to understand. It's difficult to believe. That's the key. So if you get your belief in order, if you just believe the Bible for what it says and not worry about what it means, you'll find out that you'll be able to properly and dispensationally apply things where they belong and remove them where they do not belong. So the three divisions of Revelation are broken up or divided, if you will, by two main events in the Bible. Two events in heaven. We find heaven in heaven opening up two times. Revelation chapter 4, and in verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, after this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was uh, as it were a trumpet talking, uh, talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the spirit. And behold, the throne was set in heaven. Once sat on the throne. Amen? So we find uh, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 through 2 breaks up one of the divisions or two of the divisions. Heaven opens up. Somebody gets up and goes. Turn over to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. I turned straight there. So now we find not only the first two are divided. Now, now the second portion and the third portion of Revelation is broken up. By heaven opened up again, but this time instead of someone coming up, someone is coming down. Revelation 19 and verse 11. Revelation 19, and verse 11, the Bible says, And I saw heaven opened. Behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and, it was, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. We know this, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we clearly understand that it's his second advent to come and set up his kingdom to rule around the earth for a thousand years. So the divisions of Revelation, guys, are broken up into three areas. So let's go back to Revelation chapter 1, Revelation chapter 1 tonight. So they're broken up into these three parts, these three divisions, if you will. And we see these three divisions in chapter 1, verse 19. Verse 19. The Bible says here, Write the things which thou hast seen. That's division number 1. And the things which are. That's division number 2. And the things which shall be hereafter. That is number 3. The things that thou hast seen. The things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. So these divisions, guys, are written so the reader, us, can figure out the past, the present, and the future by applying the context of the verses and applying them where, and most importantly, very carefully, listen here, when they are to go, when they're happening and what's going on at the time. The key here, this is the key, and it is also the reason why there's so many problems in understanding the book, because people are reading it from a viewpoint that is incorrect. So we need to understand, we need to apply the context of the verses, we need to apply them within, within one of those three divisions, and we need to understand where and when they go. Again, I've said it before, Revelation is not difficult to understand. It's simply hard to believe. If we get to belief in order, the rest will follow. So in order to properly apply these three divisions, guys, uh, we need to understand the past, present, and the future according to the writings of the scriptures. So we need to understand what present, if you will, okay, what present the scriptures are being penned, that when they're being penned. And that is to say, where is John when he penned the revelation of Jesus Christ? Well, historically, we understand that John is, uh, is on the Isle of Patmos, okay, in, uh, in the final decade of the first century. So if you were to chart out the Book of Revelation and you were to use, uh, say, a ruler, okay, and you had 12 dashes on that ruler, and let's just say each dash is a is an inch, okay, or uh, you can use centimeters if you'd like, but it'd be a smaller ruler, but let's just say it's an inch. That latter portion, that 96 A.D. when John's physically on the Isle of Patmos, will be about the two-inch mark, all right. So you have 12 inches, 12 dashes on your on your uh, on your paper. You would put that. On the two-inch mark, but understand what did the Bible say? What do we read? About it? The Bible tells us that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Yeah, on the Lord's day. Now, I've actually read when I was a younger Christian, I actually read some men's uh, 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 commentaries on that particular verse, and I've actually seen where men said that he was he was actually he was Sunday when he wrote when he penned the, the, the Lord penned the Book of Revelation. And guys, I understand that may sound nice. But the Lord's day has and always will be the second advent of Jesus Christ. Always will be. It's never going to be anything other than that. Right there, it is the second advent. It's not Sunday. He may come back on a Sunday in the second advent. Who knows? But nonetheless, the Lord's day is um, the Lord's day is the second advent, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the Holy Spirit, or spiritually speaking, we find John is carried into the future to write. The things that thou hast seen, past, the things which are present, and the things which shall be hereafter. So again, if you're thinking in your mind with that slide rule, if you will, and I said the two-inch mark is 96 AD, you're going to run all the way over to the nine-inch mark, and that's going to be where John was spiritually writing the book of Revelation. Even though he wrote it in the last decade of the first century, God took him way over here in the 21st century, somewhere, okay, for him to see, for him to write the things which thou hast seen. We know that is the entire church age of 2,000 plus years or 2,000 years of the church age, okay? But that's important for us to understand. It's very important for us to know that because it puts things where they belong. Again, uh, Brother Allen had mentioned about you know scaffolding the scaffolding and things go exactly where they do and that's what you find that's called dispensationalism I, I use the term square peg through square hole round pegs through round holes it's very very simple when you apply things where they belong if you don't apply things where they belong then they become quite confusing and we see false religions established for that particular reason so John is carried into the future to write the things thou hast seen the things which are. Things which shall be hereafter. So, from where John stands, the past, or the things that thou hast seen, which would be between that 2 inch and 8 inch mark, if you will, okay? The tribulation, when he writes, is going to be the uh, the present, which is in between that 8 and 10 inch mark, if you picture that ruler in your head. And the millennial kingdom is the future, 10 to 12 inch on the rule there, all right? So, the three divisions that we find are as follows, all right? And I mentioned this earlier. The church age, which is in chapters 1 through 3, the tribulation, chapters 4 through 19, the millennial kingdom, and of course eternity, uh, chapters 20 through 22. So the Bible as a whole is written to one of three classes of people. So you you see this number three kind of showing up. Over and over and over. And there's a reason behind that. God is a triune being. We are triune beings, all right. Adam was created in the image of of God, and in the image of God created He them, male and female. You understand? We were cre- we were conceived in the image of Adam, still a triune being. Therefore, we are triune being. You understand that to here tonight? So there's something significant about that number three. And we see that several times. Three divisions the church, age, tribulation, the millennial kingdom. We've already seen that uh, very clearly tonight. We see the three things the, the past, the present, the future. But we see also that the Bible as a whole, from cover to cover, is written to one of three classes of people the Jew, the Gentile, or the church of God. The Jew, the Gentile, the church. There's only three people on the face of the planet tonight. Three types of people the Jew, unsaved Jew, the Gentile, unsaved Gentile. And the church of God saved you and Gentile. That's simple time. That's very simple to understand, isn't it? It's not deep. That's not deep science. It's not hard to understand. There's no confusion there. Very simple. When we begin to understand that that's the three classes of people on the planet today, it's going to help us in our gospel witness as well. So therefore, since the divisions are correct, it's no surprise that chapter 1 is written to Christians, or it's written to the church, the body of Christ, okay? And one can apply the book in this general sense, guys. We can look at it in this manner, that chapters 1 through 4, deal with the church age, okay, with, with the exception to the doctrinal applications uh, that you will find in, that, in those chapters. Chapters 5 through 19 is written to the Jew during the tribulation period. Now, in your mind, you say, well, why, why the Jew? Because that's what it's for. That's what it's for. Tribulation period is not for the Gentile. Matter of fact, it, it's the Gentile... Uh, are no one scarcely saved if they even get saved? We do know there are a small people, a portion of people who are saved, spared, if you will, as Job said by the skin of his teeth. All right, in the are tri- in the tribulation period and walk in the millennial kingdom. And the only way they do that was because they somehow, some way, helped the remnant of Israel, the one fourth remnant of Israel. And I believe personally, it's those. And we see in Revelation chapter twelve the wings of eagles. We believe that they flew them into the city of Petra to protect them from the slaughter the Antichrist was pouring out in, in his reign. Okay? So, I'm saying that to say this. We know in Luke 19, we know in Matthew 25, he said, When the Lord Jesus Christ said, Thou done unto the least of these, my brethren, that's not the church, that is Israel, my brethren, thou hast done it unto me. Enter there into the kingdom, right? And they said, When do we give you drink? When do we visit you in prison? When do we give you meat? And he said, If you done it unto the least of these? So somehow they don't even know what they're doing. They don't even know why they're doing it. But we know they don't take the mark of the beast. We know they help Israel to some some extent, and therefore we find Gentiles being populated. Okay, we also know the Gentile nations uh, are angry. They come against God, come against Jesus Christ. At the end of the millennial kingdom, once Satan is turned loose, I'm saying all that to say this: the tribulation's main focus is the completion of the 490 years that they owe, that Israel owes God. They have fulfilled 483 thus far. God put his time clock, his time stamp, and stopped that clock. And then uh, with, with Jesus Christ coming onto the scene to give time for this un, unaccounted for or unprojected uh, amount of time known as the church age, the age of grace. And then as soon as the rapture of the church, the Holy Spirit of God is taken out of here, that's when his time clock kicks back in, and those seven years will be uh, fulfilled. And we spoke about that a couple weeks ago. So chapters 5 through 19 deal primarily with the Jew During the tribulation period, chapters twenty through twenty-two deal primarily with the Gentiles' condition in eternity. All right, with the Gentiles' condition in eternity, and I know that may sound a bit odd to you, but that is what it is. So, turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter one, and we're going to look at verse one. And I want to kind of focus on this introduction, this overview of the book of Revelation tonight, as we begin to establish the authority of the authorship, if you will. Concerning the book of Revelation. We're just going to go through verse by verse for as long as we can tonight, and then we will uh, close, and then maybe if the Lord allows down the road, we can pick up where we left off. So, we'll look, look with me in the very first verse, Revelation chapter 1 and in verse 1. Well, it says in the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show of his servants things which must shortly come to pass, and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. So the book is called the Revelation of Jesus Christ, as Jesus is God, and God gave the revelation unto John. So there's our authorship established, and the rest of and many verses to follow that will be supportive verses to show who is the author and the authority of the revelation of Jesus Christ here. Look with me in verse two. The Bible says in verse two, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that So John bears record of the word of God and the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. The same expression is found in verse 9. Flip over there just real quick in verse 9. The Bible says that I, John, who also am a brother and companion in tribulation and in kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, which is in the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Okay, so the testimony, this, this testimony is biblically defined as the spirit of prophecy, if you will, and, uh, which is the ability to proclaim the future. Now, we've heard people say about having the gifts of prophecy. Um, guys, I'm going to tell you right now, the Bible's clear. We have, you can proclaim the future as long as you find it within the little black and uh, black and white pages of this Bible. If you try to proclaim anything outside of this book right here, You've already stepped out in what's called extra revelation, and that is not for today. God's finished this book. It's perfect. You're not going to get anything from God that is not confined to this book. And that rubs some people wrong, and that's fine. I still go back to what Billy Sunday said. They accused him of always stroking the cat backwards. He said, turn the cat around, all right? And that's what you've got to do. You've got to fall in line with the Holy Scriptures, okay? So we know the Word of God is infallible because the prophetical elements distinguish it so. Just write it down, if you will, tonight, Isaiah chapter 41, verses 23 through 26. Listen to this. You just write it down. You don't have to write the verse down, just write the address. The Bible says, show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are, that we may know that you are gods. Yea, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and behold it together. Behold, ye are of nothing, and your work of naught. An abomination is he chooseth you. Um, I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come. From the rising of the sun shall he call upon my name, and he shall call upon princes as upon water, and as potters tread clay, who have declared from the beginning that we may know, and before time that we may see. He is righteous, yea, there is none that shall, yea, there is none that declare, yea, there is none that heareth your word. So we can know that the Bible is the word of God, Because it is the only book ever written which foretells every detail of the future without one mistake whatsoever. The book was written, guys, by over 20 different authors, over three different continents, and over over more than a 1,000 years apart. And yet zero mistakes can be found through his prophetical teachings. Zero, not one. So let's go back to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, we'll look at verse 3 just real quick. Verse 3. Verse 3 says here, It says, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of his prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Now, I love that verse. I really do. It's early on in the 22-chapter book here. But I love that verse because it just says it's at hand. In verse 1, John writes it to shortly come. So the book of Revelation, guys, opens a door of understanding to the believer. To know when these things begin to occur, that we know the end is near. And what are earmarks, one of the earmarks, guys, one of the greatest earmarks of things, uh, of things happening, you know, that final period of time before the Lord Jesus Christ snatches his church out of here and the closing of the church age is a lukewarm church, the lukewarm church age. I'm not talking about necessarily the local uh, churches, but we know that the church age is made up of local churches, the lukewarm churches. Paul speaks of them, calling them a fallen away. He says a fallen away must first occur, right? And this is the apostate church, which begins uh, by becoming lukewarm. And it is a Christless church. Uh, Guys, it is is, something that that has done more than just forsake his first love, but rather it's removed him, put him out, and removed him from the outside of the church and removed him from the inside of the building, as well as the lives of the people. The church house has become a place of entertainment. It's become a place of mystical enlightenment brought in, brought in by wretched apostates in our world today who've crept in unawares and teach damnable heresies, deceiving millions of souls into a devil's hell for eternity. These are the people, guys, these people don't even belong. They don't even belong teaching their, their doctrine in a back alley, much less guys in the house of God standing in this pulpit. You know what? The thing about it, the Lord is not going to be involved in the things that this modern society refers to as "quote unquote" church, he's not going to. If it doesn't line up with this scripture, he's not going to be involved in it. He's not interested in synthetic forms of worship, which people call praise. He's interested in true worship, which involves a dedicated life to Christ. Now, we hear we've heard it for the past two decades. Worship leaders, okay? And there's there's a, a script. I guess pastor. I don't know what they call a the pastor in these modern churches nowadays. But whatever they call them, uh, I wouldn't call them at all, but nonetheless, uh, they call these song leaders worship leaders. Um, guys, can I, let me say this very clearly, scripturally speaking and biblically speaking, singing and music is not worship, never has been, never will be, okay, it's the preparation to worship, it is praise, it's not worship. The first time worship shows up in the Bible is associated with what? A sacrifice. Abraham and, and Abraham's taking Isaac up to Mount Moriah, which would later be named as Jerusalem, the very place where Jesus Christ was crucified. And he says up, he goes, I see the fire, I see the wood, where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God shall provide himself a lamb. But that first time the word worship shows up. Uh, um I, um Abraham and Isaac are, are walking along the way there, they're with the servants, and he said, Tarry ye here with the ass. I and the lad will go yonder and what? And worship. He was planning to sacrifice. He was planning to sacrifice Isaac to show that there was nothing between him and God. But Abraham's faith was so great. He says, I and the to will go yonder and worship and come again unto thee. He knew that he sacrificed God's son, but he all I mean he sacrificed Isaac. He knew that God had given the covenant, passed down to Isaac, that God was good enough himself, amen. To resurrect him right back. And praise God when he halted his hand. I believe at the same time they were walking up that Mount Moriah, there was a ram walking up on the other side, got caught in the thicket, and just like Abraham said, God shall provide himself a lamb. Amen. Thousands of years later, Jesus Christ in the same location is crucified for the death, for for the the sins of all mankind. That was what that was a foreshadowing. Say all went and say this. Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, is not interested in really and truly how loud we can sing or how great we can play the banjo or the guitar. He's not not interested. You can do that all day long if you want to. If your heart is not close to Him, it is not preparing for worship, and there is no worship involved. And unfortunately, the greatest earmark that we're finding today, what we're finding today is a lukewarm church, the apostate church, this final church age, the Laodicean church age, uh, which we'll cover here in just a moment. We're finding that they have apostatized. They've fallen away from the scriptural truth. I could spend the next hour up here on and just quote things that people have said to me that they believe to be true. That they heard from a pulpit somewhere. That is nothing more than damnable heresies. Nothing more than mockery of what Jesus Christ has done. And that's an earmark of where we are today in this world, of where we are in the timeline, if you will, on that 12-inch ruler that you may have in mind. Look at verse 4 there, Revelation chapter 1. and I'm watching my time here. Revelation chapter 1, and look there verse 4. The Bible says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. And for the seven spirits which are before his Throne for your strong. Now the number seven, guys, occurs many times in the Bible. We have here that we just read about the seven churches, seven spirits. In verse 20, we see the seven stars, the seven golden candlesticks, and the seven churches again. In the final chapter of the book of Revelation, we find we find a, a phrase this book, all right. The phrase this book in the final chapter occurs seven times. That phrase this book. In Revelation alone, there are the seven churches, seven candlesticks, seven stars, seven angels, seven miles, seven trumpets, seven seals, and seven. Um, seven uh, personages. Seven is God's number of completion. It is his number of perfection. And the book of Revelation is God's final book of the Bible, written more than 30 years after any other writing of Scripture. And it was the final Holy Scripture to be written. You see, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 tells us this in verses 9 through 11. For we know in part, now think about when Paul's writing this, okay? For we know in part, and we prophesy part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away with, or done away. He goes on to say, when I was a child, I stayed as a child, I stood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. That which is perfect, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse uh, 9 and 10, that is the word of God. That which is perfect, the completed word, it's not a reference to Jesus Christ. Can anybody tell me why? It's not a reference to Jesus Christ when Paul writes to the Corinthian church. Alright? Well, because Jesus Christ had already come and died and was buried and rose again. Amen. It's very simple. See, it's common sense tonight if you just believe he's already came there. And sure, at the rapture, we're going to have the mind of Christ. We understand that. This flesh will be transformed to have a glorified body as Christ. We see that in verse 12, and 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, we understand that. Uh, and we, we understand it's referring to a heavenly time, to be known as we are known. But that which is perfect is the Word of God. And it is not. Um, and there is not a man or a woman on the planet tonight who has the right to correct what is written here in the Bible. Anybody, I'll tell you what, one mark, I believe, of a false teacher is when someone makes this comment, a better translation is, and then you fill in the blank. You don't have the right to say a better translation is. You don't have the right to say a better word is. You're not God. You don't have the mind of God. You're not all powerful, all knowing, all present. We don't have the right to say that. You stand in the the danger of correcting God's word? Are you kidding me? No, sir. It will answer itself, and it will stand alone. Our job is to believe it. Not figure it out. Believe it. Look at verse 5 with me. We'll cover a couple more verses and uh, and we'll shut her down for tonight. I wanted. There's one place that I really wanted to get to. Maybe we'll be able to, and then we'll we'll close. Verse five tells us here. it Says and from and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first boy, uh, first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Jesus Christ, uh, guys, was a prophet on the earth. Can we understand that and. And as a prophet, he died. He is a prince in heaven. And one day he'll come back. He'll be the king. All right? It's, it's very clear. He has a threefold position, he does. But as for now, he is our high priest, according to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, who shed his blood as a prophet. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 8 through 12. You can write those down, Study those out on your own time. And mind you, it was shed once and it was shed for all. What a blessing that is. Look at verse 6 with me. Verse 6. The Bible says that. And have made us kings and priests unto God and His Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What a blessing. The Lord has made us, who are saved, born and given the blood of Christ, a priest in the age in which we live now. A royal priesthood, okay? That's very important for us to understand. One day He will make us kings in the ages to come. We understand that. That kingdom, that kingship uh, will be on a, a regenerated, cleansed, and purified Earth, and that will be during that millennial kingdom. Revelation chapter 5 gives us a picture of this. Revelation chapter 5 verses 9 through 10. It says, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to, uh, redeemed us to God uh, by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. For thou hast made us unto our God, kings and priests. And we shall reign on this earth. So we understand it. All right. It's not now. That's not today. We're not building or working for that to come in. That's going to come in at his own power. Amen. So, verse 7, just real quick for me tonight. Verse 7 Behold, he cometh with clouds. And every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall well because of him. Even so. Amen. This will be about that 10 inch mark, if you will, if you're still using that ruler in your mind. This is a reference to the second advent of Jesus Christ. Not the rapture of the church. Every eye does not see the Lord Jesus Christ at the rapture the statue of the church. As a matter of fact, uh, they're only going to hear the sound of the thunder, and that's it, at best. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul states that this is a mystery. Uh, it, it's not an outward visible appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he is appearing in the air, as we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We understand that very clearly. This event occurs so quick, flash of the lightning, and a massive clap of thunder done invested before one can even think about it. That quick. Okay? Matter of fact, that was slow compared to how it's going to happen. Uh, <laughs> physicist physicist uh, factor it, it happens in a flash of time, which is point 0.1 to the negative 45th power. Alright, the amount of time it takes for light to refract in your eye tonight is how quick the rapture is going to happen. Okay? Alright, very quick. Very easy tonight. I understand that. Verse 8, we see this authorship, this authority given yet again. Verse 8. Since I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. This is the Lord Jesus Christ saying and speaking of himself, saying that he is the beginning and he is the ending. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the final. The Lord Jesus Christ said, I am the first, I am the last, and I have everything in between. He is every letter between first and last. Therefore, he is every word printed from start to finish. He is everything from cover to cover. The Bible says which is. That's when he, was, he is now a priest. Which was? He was yet a prophet. Which And which um, is to come. That is when he will be king. Do you understand? He is the almighty God, first and the last. He, is the word because, uh, he and his word becomes our sole authority. Not our final authority, but sole authority. I understand we like the phrase that the Bible is my final authority, da 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 By indication if the Bible is your final authority, then you looked at something beforehand. He's our sole authority. As a matter of fact, uh, Bible-believing Christians, which we call ourselves Baptists today, we were once called Paulicians Felicia, uh, and Waldensians and Huguenots and all this and that, called Christians in Acts chapter 11, holding to the same doctrine that we hold to today. The very premise of our ideology, of our doctrine, of our faith, it's founded on the Bible its sole authority in faith and practice. That's the very first part when it comes to the Baptist distinctives, what sets us apart from other inferior belief systems through the word of God himself. So look at verse 9 with me when he uses this phrase, companion in tribulation. I, John, who also am your brother, companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ which was or was in the isle of those of Patmos, for the word of God the Testimony of Jesus Christ talked about this just a moment ago, but I do want us to take a very a clear meaning and understand uh, that I want you to take note that, uh, in uh, that's in verse 10, but that he's not referring to the tribulation period, all right? He's rather referring to the fact that he was exiled in the Isle of heaven, so that's why it's mentioned there, all right? Uh, it, it, he's, a, he's a companion of tribulation, if you will, not the tribulation, that's very clear uh, in the scriptures, if you will, and uh, verse 10. This is a verse that I did want to get to, um, and specifically because it brings the thought to our mind real quick. I think I can take a few more moments here and be, uh, be still be safe without you guys throwing me out. Uh, so, verse ten says, "I was in the spirit of the Lord's day." This declares where John was when he was uh, writing to receive the revelation of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit of the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Notice says, I was in the Spirit, as capital S. You need to take note of that expression there in the Scripture, uh, not a lowercase s. And uh, The title S denotes that he was in the Holy Spirit, all right? Uh, not man's spirit. And, uh, like sometimes, you know, we would say, uh, uh, man, there was a great spirit in church today. And, uh, you know, does that mean that the Holy Spirit of God was there? Well, I hope and pray that the Holy Spirit of God was in church. Uh, But the reality is if if believers are in the church house, the Holy Spirit of God is there because He's within us. We're in the tabernacle. We're His temple, amen? He's inside of us. We understand that. But when we say that God's a great spirit there, we're meaning that, you know, it it was comfortable. There was liberty. There was freedom. We had fellowship. You know, it was a good day in the house of the Lord. John is saying, I was in the spirit, the Holy Spirit, okay, on the Lord's day. So verse 10 is is something very different than the spirit, uh, the spirit of man, uh, guys, we are understanding that it is very, very clear. Now, not every born-again believer uh, is in the Holy Spirit. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Every born-again believer is in the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit of God is in them. And if you want proof of that, that's First Corinthians 12, Colossians 2, Romans chapter 6, and Romans chapter 8. Very clear that if you are saved today, you're sealed by what? The Holy Spirit of promise. All right? Once he comes in, it doesn't come out. Hey, Amen? I like that part right there. You understand? So, but this event here, verse 10... Um, it's quite different, all right? It's referring to a special transformation that moves the body. Same thing we read about in Revelation 4.1, and immediately I was in the spirits that we find there. And this is referring to the miraculous movement of forward in time, as we discussed just a little bit ago, from the last decade of the first century to sometime in the 21st century. So we need to understand that is what is occurring here, all right? So look with me in Verse 11. Verse eleven, and uh, we'll uh, we'll get into this thing, and uh, we'll finish up here in just a second. There's one area where I wanted to see if I can close out tonight, and I'm going to look and see where we are. Okay, so we'll get into that in just a minute. Verse eleven, uh, the Bible says, "Say and I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches, which are in Asia: and in Ephesus, and the Smyrna, and the Pergamos, and the Thyatira, and Sardis, and the Philadelphia." and unto Laodicea. The churches mentioned here. They're spoken of by the speaker, if you will. The speaker uh, that we find in verse 8. Who's in verse 8? I am the Alpha the Lord Jesus Christ. So concerning these churches which are located in Asia, we we know it as Asia Minor, otherwise uh, known as the Near East, um, as opposed to say China, India, etc. like that. The present location of Asia Minor would be like Turkey in that area right there, okay? And so these are seven literal churches, most of which were established uh, by the Apostle Paul, uh, either directly or indirectly. These seven churches differ in names, and each one of them are representative to a particular period in church history. We call them church ages. There are seven church ages, okay? We, you cannot miss this. If you miss this point here, from this, when you study the book of Revelation, you are thrown off completely, all right? When you look at chapters 2 through 3, as he goes through these seven churches, that is referring to a church age, all right. Uh, even though these are literal churches that he's speaking of. So we understand that uh, Ephesus means fully purposed. Fully purposed is what it means. And Smyrna means myrrh. It's that frankincense, if you will, an incense. Um, incense, I should mean, uh, of, of, myrrh, of myrrh. Now, Smyrna, that myrrh uh, would be bitter to the taste, but if you were to crush myrrh, it sends forth a very sweet smelling savor. Why is that important? Because Smyrna was the, was the, was the, the period of time where the church was most persecuted, from AD 200 to 3, 325, where we know there were 10 Roman persecutions. Millions of Christians were destroyed. And uh, it ended in 325 AD. And then, of course, we find the new one, the next one, Pergamus, which means marriage. Now, what is important about that for us to understand? is that from 200 A.D. to 325 A.D., you have this onslaught of these 10 Roman uh, persecutions against the Church of God. And then in 313 A.D., you have an emperor by the name of Constantine come to charge. And he continued this onslaught. He continued this persecution. He continued to try to wipe Christians out. And every time, again, just like under uh, domination, you find that every time he would kill one, a hundred would pop up. And, And then he just could not get rid of them. And so he devised a plan to... Be like them. If you can't beat them, join them. But only join them in a pseudo manner, if you will. You see, Rome was always really good at conquering nations, and they didn't do anything new. When they conquered Greece, they didn't change any of the Greeks' Greek gods. They just changed their names. It's the same gods they worship. They just got a different name. They gave a, they gave them a, a Roman name. We know the the famous Caesarea Philippi. Right? Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus Christ says, uh, thou art Peter, he you know, says, upon this rock sink of himself, I will build my church, right? Okay, in case the hell against it. Matthew 16, 18. Well, where did where, where does Caesarea come from? Because that city was established under Philip of Mastodon, the, the father of Alexander the Great, under uh, under Grecian rule. It was named after him. Well, all the only thing the Romans did when they conquered Greece was throw Caesar's name on there. Caesarea, Philippi. That's all Rome has ever done, is they would conquer through bloodlust, they would conquer through destruction, they would take what was other people's and rename it. So, Constantine does the very same thing. This new church age kicks off, the church age for Gombus, known as marriage, and what he did was commit fornication, he committed an adulterous marriage by marrying the church, or the state, if you will, with a pseudo-church, thus giving birth to what? The Catholic institution. Every one of them. It was all formed in Pergamos. Matter of fact, you find when you read chapter 2, where Satan's seat dwells, Satan's seat literally moved from Rome to Pergamos. You understand? And in 325 AD, or 327 AD, he says, you know what? We can't beat them. They converted from pagan Rome to papal Rome. But all they did was change their pagan gods names to what they refer to as saints today. Well, that's amazing, isn't it? 2.4 billion people will proclaim believers in that system where they worship a dead Jesus or a baby. I'll give you some freedom tonight. I'll cut some of the sermon out. In the Philippines, the Philippines is made up of thousands of little islands all over the place. It was a very mineral, wealthy land. During during the, the Spanish reign or rule in the world, if you will, you had Let's just call them what they are. They call them in history books, explorers, all right, like Magellan, all right, but they were Catholic missionaries, and what they did is they went exploring in their, master, in their ships with their soldiers, led by an explorer, and they went and they conquered lands, and you know what they did? They brought this little baby doll. I've seen them with my own eyes. i watched women dance for money outside of the church to dance your sins away because they believe that happens. That's so what they've been taught. And they'll have this little baby called the Santanini, this holy child, encased, and that's what they'll bow and worship. Magella would present this to people as he would come with his Roman armies, and they would take control of land and rob them of every mineral known to man, except one island, just off the city of Cebu. He showed up there to that island, and when he showed up there, the chief met out there. There's a monument today called Magellan's Cross, and you know what it signifies? It's the place where Magellan got his head cut off. Now, they may have been pagans, but they knew exactly what the Romans were. They knew about the the, Roman Catholic institution. They knew what it was. They said, we'll have none of your God here. We'll have none of your baby. We'll have none of you here today. The chief cut Magellan's head off right then and there. They refused to accept that sent but thousands and millions of people today are enslaved by a doctrine that was began just by an emperor who said, look, we got to take a step back. We'll stop the persecution on the outside. And what will we do? We're going to make it look like we join them. We're going to invite all, all the people in. They can keep their pagan festivals, and we're going to give them Christian names, right? right? We have one coming up here in about a week now, not we?" Usually the ceremony of swaheem, we know that, don't we? Uh, there was one particular day; it was called All Souls' Day when they would perform necromancy. They would pray unto the dead, to the dead relatives, and they would pray to them, right? And there was a day before that All Souls' Day; it was called All Hallows' Eve, mm-hmm. as we know it as Halloween today. Catholic Church stepped in; they changed it from All Souls' Day to All Saints' Day. How foolish do you have to be to think that a man dressed up in a dress has the ability to forgive sins, the ability to saint someone? Do you know who gave me my sainthood? My Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. When he shed his blood for me, when my God stepped down from the realm of eternity and took off his royal robes in heaven and rubbed on the, 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 the robes of flesh to live 33 and a half years to suffer and to die for me personally. That's how I became a saint. Not because some pervert said that I was. And especially not after I died. That's another, my goodness, I guess the, the two good things you get when you die is you get saint, sainted and you get the saint made after you, right? One of the two. So anyway, settle that to make this point, guys. That's that third church age. Ran from 200 AD to 325 AD. I mean, sorry, 325 AD to 500 AD, which is the third church age of Pernambus. You have Thyatira, which is known as the odor of affliction. So Smyrna and Thyatira were the two persecuted churches we know of. Sardis is the red ones. Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love. The only two church ages that Jesus Christ did not rebuke would be Smyrna, the sacrificing, and the suffering church, and Philadelphia. The Church of Brotherhood Love, which ended in around 1900 and 1901, giving birth in the final church age, the church age of Laodicea. Now, I've been preaching this, guys, for 26, 27 years. And I, I, look, I saw back then oh, exactly what my pastor told me that Laodicea means. I never in my life could have fathomed, what I'm seeing today at 51 years old, mm-hmm. of what it means, rights of the people. The final church age in this world is earmarked by the rights of the people. Guys, it is a time where God is robbed of his authority, he and taken upon uh, uh, man and become an authority unto themselves. It is a reflection of the time when Israel had no king and refused to allow God to be to rule in their life. We read it two times in Judges seven in Judges. In Judges seventeen six, and in those days there was no king of Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Same thing in Judges 21, verses 25. And in those days, there was no king of Israel ever made what was right in his own eyes. So, in closing tonight on this portion, if there's ever been a time when we see more rights of the people, it's today. Children are given the right to call themselves whatever they want, okay? And you're not supposed to tell them differently. If little Johnny wakes up uh, tomorrow morning and he decides he wants to be a Julie, You'll get yourself in trouble. There's some places you'll go to jail for telling them, "No, sir, you're born a boy. You're a boy." You know the NHS came out and made a great statement the other day. They said, "I believe we believe that most children who want to have this uh, uh, this surgery, this reassignment surgery, they, he, the NHS themselves said we believe it's just a phase, and it is. It is. Children are given the right to call themselves whatever they want to." There are groups of people today who identify themselves as animals. Guys, they can be whatever gender they want. The education system is preparing and teaching pure perversion to children, and it's an absolute atrocity. You know what the government says? It's our right to do so. This new curriculum wasn't even put up for a vote. It just happened. I'm not going to get on that bandwagon. I'm not going to get on that soapbox on any time. But we live in the final church. And go, why do why, why why teach on all this for 40-some-odd minutes tonight? Why bring this to the table? Number one, it's the closing book of the Bible. And it's very simple to understand when you put things where they belong. Number two, we're seeing right now, very clearly, that the days are short. And we've been saying it. Those of you who've got gray hair or no hair and been saved that long, you know. And we've been saying this for years, haven't we? Yeah, we thought. I thought the book. What was that old book? Eighty-eight reasons why Jesus has come back in nineteen eighty-eight. You know, I wasn't saved in eighty-eight. Praise God! I'm glad He didn't come back, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, could you please take the man?